Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. And if you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 63, we'll pick up where we left off last time uh, in verse 7. And I want to remind you that as Isaiah is praying here, it's important to remember when he's praying. So he, he writes this in roughly 686 B.C. Uh, the children of Israel have been in the land for about 400 years or so. You have this incredible picture of this group of people that, like no other group of people on the face of the earth, had a clear understanding of who the Lord is. And yet at the same time, they seem to always have difficulty in really discerning the will of the Lord and actually following through on what God wants them to do. And it is out of that heart that Isaiah prays. It's this understanding that they weren't where they needed to be, that they had a ways to go, and yet at the same time that God in heaven, who knew all things, was with them, and while he didn't approve of everything they did, they certainly had his eye upon them. And so as we transition between chapter 63 and 64, uh, we really pick up uh, this beautiful prayer. And so would you join me? And we'll pray and dig into this prayer of Isaiah. Father, we thank you that we have access to the very throne of God through prayer. That, Lord, we can come to you and ask of you, beseech you, check in with you, Lord, always seek your face, that your ear is never turned away, that your eyes cannot see, and that as your children tonight, as we bring our things to you, Lord, that you're the ever-present help in our time of difficulty and struggle. And so, Lord, bless us as we study your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we touched on this intro And as as we now kind of begin the meat of this, notice as we pick up in verse 7, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed upon us and the goodness towards the house of Israel which he has bestowed upon them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. Now remember where they are. They're effectively trapped in Jerusalem. They're in complete bondage, if you will, to a foreign invading army. Uh, they, they have been nearly wiped out by Assyria. They're about to go into captivity in Babylon. And so this isn't a time when you could look at the circumstances and naturally be inclined to praise the Lord. Anybody have circumstances in your life going on right now where you're not naturally inclined to praise the Lord? We all do. It's called a COVID pandemic. We all do. It's called a financial difficulty. We all do. It's called the things that are going on in your life and mine. We all have times when the circumstances in our lives do not indicate that our natural inclination should be to remember the loving kindnesses of the Lord. And that was certainly true for Isaiah. And yet, he knows who God is. And so he speaks very clearly of the loving kindness of God. The right time, the Lord's declared his vengeance is going to come, his wrath is going to be poured out. We saw that in our last study. We we know that God is going to bring justice to the children of Israel, but that justice is not going to come in that moment. Matter of fact, that justice still actually has not yet fully come. There's been glimmers of it. But in those intervening 2,700 years to tonight, Israel has gone through disaster after disaster after disaster. 
And yet Isaiah sees the loving kindnesses of the Lord. And so he mentions it. He's been kind. He's been gracious. Look, church, he's been kind and he's been gracious to us too. Amen? Even in our struggles, even in our trials, even in the tribulations that we go through, they're still behind all of the things that we struggle with and struggle against is a loving God. And we need to remember that. We need to remember the loving kindnesses of the Lord. Because that's who he is. Even in his chastisement, even in those things that he allows in our lives that are not pleasant, he is still the God of loving kindness. The truth of the matter is the tribulation was going to come. The children of Israel are going to have a very, very, very difficult time. But at the same time, God is going to deliver them. Notice what it says, that in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. It it is there in verse 9, he's speaking in, in this place that I think it's so important for us to remember. You're not alone in your struggles. You're not alone in your trials. You're not alone in your difficulties. Everything you go through, the Lord goes through with you. In your afflictions, he is afflicted with you. And it says in the angel, verse 9, of his presence, saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Now think of who this is that's speaking and think of what he's speaking about and the history of the children of Israel and ask yourself a simple question. Is not the Lord good? He's good because if ever there were a group of people who repeatedly told the Lord basically, well, we don't really like what you're doing, so we're going to do our own thing, it was the Jewish people. They're delivered in Egypt. They go into the wilderness. He delivers them day by day. He sends them manna. He takes care of them every moment. He he frees them from their slavery. And at the same time, they're like, well, we don't really like what you've allowed in our lives. Every moment they struggled in the wilderness, God was afflicted. Every pain they went through, God felt. Every hardship they endured, the Lord felt the hardship that they endured. God is not absent from your trials. He's he's not a God who sits back and kind of, you know, laughs, scorns the things that you go through and says, well, you know, I'm up here in heaven, so, you know, who cares? No, God is an emotive God. He feels your pain. When you hurt, he hurts. Sometimes I think that we we think God is immune to those things. But just like every parent feels the pain of their children, those of you that are parents in this room and those of you that are waiting to be parents, you will know this, but we who are parents, we feel the pain of our kids. We may not feel it the same as they do, but when our kids go through something, we're sitting there going, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I wish I could change it. Can I tell you that sometimes your kids get themselves into those situations about which we emote? Those things that pain us. They got themselves into those situations. The same is true on an infinitely higher level with the Lord. Even though you may have done something, the children of Israel certainly did things to get themselves in trouble, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care in the midst of that. He hurts with you. Those pains pain him. The Lord identifies, in essence, with our suffering. And you can see this throughout Scripture. There's one time that comes to mind. You might remember the Apostle Paul is, as he's ministering with Silas in, in Acts chapter 16. Um, they are beaten. They're flogged. 
They're told, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they're in the midst of all of that. Interestingly enough, the angel of the Lord ministers to them and and says that in your affliction, I am with you. They're in that prison cell. God himself was being afflicted. And so don't forget that when you're going through something difficult. The Lord truly cares about what you're going through. He's not absent. He's not like that person. And we all have them in our lives to where, you know what I'm, you know what I'm about to say. You text somebody, hey, can you please pray for me? And they text back, yeah, sure, LOL. You know, it's like you, you know that there's going to be nothing put into that prayer whatsoever. Why? Because they honestly really don't care. Not in the way that God does. They may know you. They may know about you. They may have some thoughts about your situation. But in the deepest sense, they really don't care the way God cares. God was so good to them. Even though they will ultimately reject Messiah, God was good. And he remains good to this day. God is good. Verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So this is Isaiah praying. In spite of the fact that God is good, in spite of the fact that he feels their pain, In spite of the fact that he's with them in the midst of trial, in spite of the fact that what hurts them hurts him. Anybody else identify with what Isaiah's praying here? Even when I do know sometimes, maybe it's just in my thoughts, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And so he turned himself against them as an enemy. And he fought against them. You know, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. God does not take lightly, even though he loves us, to our sin. And again, for those of you that are parents, you know this basic concept. You know there are times, as much as you love your children, you have, in essence, been set against them by their actions. They continue down a path. You've told them they can't go that direction. They go that way anyway. What happens? For a time, you become enemies. You want to do that? Here's the consequences of your actions. We're going to have a little mini war right here in our house. You decide that you're going to do what you want to do. You decide you're going to stay out until 2 o'clock in the morning. You come back at 2.05. I'm going to be waiting for you. And it's not going to be good. The same is true with the Lord. He turns himself against them as an enemy. And he fought against them. And then he remembered the days of old. Moses and his people saying, Wah, wah, wah. Oh, that's not what it says. (laughs) It is what it says. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of the flock? How quickly we forget that God is good, that he's kind. And we start complaining, we start grumbling about the things of the Lord. And Isaiah is praying this prayer. He's saying, where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by by his right hand, by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm? Whose arm actually was guiding Moses' arm? It was the Lord. Ultimately, Joshua and Caleb end up holding up, you know, holding up these, these arms of Moses. It's like, you know, it's like, what are we going to do? The staff's going to come down. We're going to lose the battle. The Lord was there with them, dividing the water before them. Can you imagine? Have you ever thought about putting yourself in this crowd of, you know, who knows how many, but by some accounts, maybe a couple million people in total? And make it to the Red Sea, and there they are, the water's in front of them, the Egyptians are behind them, and Moses whips out his staff. You know, if he got an excavator or, you know, brought some ships or something, you might be going, yay! He pulls out his staff. He starts to step towards the water, and they're thinking, oh, this is great. 
you can understand, you can even identify with the fact that maybe they weren't thinking this was going to be that good. But what happened? God divided the water before them. What seemed to be impossible was instantaneously possible. What seemed to be a death sentence was actually a sentence of freedom and life. The Lord would do exactly as he said, I will deliver you. You tell them, Moses, you just tell them that I am who I am has sent you. That's who's guiding you. They couldn't even remember that the night before the angel of death passed over their house because of blood. They had forgotten in in a day they forgot what the Lord had already done. Mind-boggling. To make for himself an everlasting name. That's why God did it. He's saying, look, when you remember this, you're going to remember who I am. That's why God does what he does very often in our lives. When he delivers you, it's to make his name great. It's like, look, Jeff, I got this. Watch this. And then he delivers. He does what only he can do. Who led them through the deep as a horse in a wilderness that they might not stumble. Now, for those of you that are not familiar, I don't know how many of you have had a chance to travel to the Grand Canyon and maybe uh, sit there at the top of the Grand Canyon, the Bright Angel Trail, where the mules from across the street end up going down the Bright Angel Trail. But if you've ever watched those mules, I don't know how many of you have watched how sure-footed they are, but there are parts of that trail, because I've walked, hiked the entire length of the trail all the way to the North Rim and back again. But when you get down there, there's parts where that trail, it's 500 feet straight off a cliff, and it's about three feet wide, and the mule's about four feet wide. These are large animals, but they're sure-footed. And the Lord's saying, look, you couldn't do this on your own, but if I take you someplace, you can be absolutely sure that I will get you through, that they won't stumble. As a beast that goes into the valley, as the Spirit of the Lord causes them to rest, so you shall lead your people, again, to make yourself a glorious name, an everlasting name, a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and strength, the yearning of your heart, the mercies towards me? Are they restrained? And doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us. Now, Look at this. Abraham lived probably around 1900 B.C. This is 686. There is zero chance that Abraham knew what was going to be going on in Babylon 1,200 years later, 1,300 years later. He's just saying, look, there's no way Abraham, and yet we call him our father. You're our father, God. And you do see what's going on. You do know us. Are your mercies towards me? Are they restrained? It's a rhetorical question. Of course they're not. And Israel does not acknowledge us. That would be Jacob. The 12 sons. And that would be 300 years after Abraham. A redeemer from everlasting is your name. You are our Lord. You are our Father. You see, the Lord's basically setting himself apart through this prayer, through Isaiah speaking of who God is. He's basically saying, look, these things are coming. This is the way it's going to go. But we worship you. We're sticking tight. We're going to hang in. When the world goes the other way, we're going to stay with you. And so here comes this rhetorical question to which the answer is, God isn't going to cause them to stray. Oh, Lord. Why have you made us stray from your ways and harden your heart towards, towards your fear? Return for your servants' sake, you tribes of your inheritance, your holy people have possessed it but a little while. And our adversaries have trodden it down in your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those whom were never called by your name. Look, the truth is God didn't cause them to sin. 
But this is exactly what goes on in our little heads most of the time. It's like, Lord, why did you put, this, put me in this situation? If you'd have just given me, you know, a better life, if I wasn't married to this person, or if I didn't know that person, or if I didn't have this job, or I was not in this city, or I wasn't on that street, if I just wasn't where I am, I wouldn't be in this situation. God doesn't buy our excuses. He doesn't look at those things and go, yeah, you're right, Jeff, I made it too hard on you, and that's why you're a failure. No, he's saying, look, I was always strong enough. I was always able. I was always listening. Jeff, the problem is you. And so this news, if you will, is for us to to get to this place to where now as we dig into the meat of what Isaiah wants to say, the prayer for this Jewish remnant, as he looks forward in time to really to a time that's still ahead of us, you can either understand who God is, come to a right relationship with him now, or one day you're still going to bow your knee to him because he is worthy. Uh, he is who he says he is. And he's not going to ever let those who put their faith and trust in him down. He will always be there when we need him. So you can choose to to get right now. Or you can go with the crowd that wants to get it later. So Isaiah begins in effect by saying this, God, why don't you manifest yourself like you did in the past? You know, you're, you're, you're not being as mighty as you used to be for us right now. Now, I can tell you in my own life, that when I have reduced my prayer life to, God, why don't you do amazing things? Uh, He has a tendency to let me suffer the consequences of saying things like that to him. When I begin to blame God, when I begin to make it as though it was his weakness or his problem, it never goes well. So notice chapter 64 As we now continue on, oh, that you would rend the heavens. Oh, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things, for which we did not look, you came down, and the mountains shook in your presence, and Since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits on him. He's saying, God, why don't you manifest yourself in a way that really shows who you are? Let me begin by saying every moment when you get up and you take a breath, God is manifesting his presence in your life. Because his life and your life are intertwined, and in fact, your life is in his hands. And if he doesn't give you breath of life, you're not going to even take another breath. So every moment of every day that you take another breath, God is manifesting his power. When asteroids don't crash into this earth, God is manifesting his power. When the sun doesn't have a solar flare and scorch us to death, God is manifesting his power. When God keeps the nations of the earth from killing one another, God is manifesting his power. When you drive down a freeway in L.A., God is manifesting his power. Amen? If you survive it, God had his hand on you. No doubt about it. Sometimes we get so ridiculously caught up in our own personal desires that we forget that God is always manifesting his power. The fact that you have food to eat, God is manifesting his power. The fact that vegetables can take in sunlight and turn it into stored energy and you ultimately can consume that. That that we have clean water, God is manifesting his power every moment of every day. We just don't see it. So we want the big things. 
It's like, Lord, I need this. I need that. Don't reduce your prayer life to asking God to do miracles. During the tribulation, the kingdom age that's going to follow, God is going to be very visible to the Jewish people. He is literally going to do some of these things. But that's not how God works on a daily basis. God works in very minuscule ways sometimes that are still miraculous. Ways that we sometimes take for granted. Anybody take the goodness of the Lord for granted occasionally? I do. I do. Only takes traveling just a little bit. Get out of our comfort zone here in Southern California and travel to virtually any part of the rest of the world and you recognize exactly how good God is to us every day. In spite of the difficulties that we may face as a nation. Our problem, and you can see it here, is found in the end of verse 4. Nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who, underline it, circle it, highlight it, waits for him. God acts for the people who will wait long enough to see it. Why did I say that? Because if God is sovereign, which I believe he is, and I think most of us in this room believe he is, then God absolutely can do anything, and God absolutely can stop anything. So anything that happens, either by default was actually done and caused by God, or he allowed it to happen. Is that a fair assessment of God being sovereign? I think it is. So if in that case, there are only positive and negative results relative to any question we might ask, in other words, God could positively say yes, or he could negatively say no, or something that indicates that type of an answer, there's only one other answer that God could have if the answer to your prayer doesn't come when you immediately ask him. If God doesn't say to you yes, or God doesn't say to you no, what's the only thing left? Wait. Notice the prayer of Isaiah. God manifests himself to those who wait. God shows up in our waiting because waiting in a believer's life has to be done in a very specific way, in faith. We are people of faith, amen? So when we wait, we wait in faith. We wait in faith believing that God heard us, that God wants to act, that he knows exactly how to act, and he also knows, here it comes, when to act. You see, sometimes we want God to do what we want him to do, and we want it right now. And God's saying, sorry, Jeff, but no, not right now. Now, notice I didn't say, sorry, Jeff, no. I said, sorry, Jeff, no, not right now. Because I've got a few other billion people that I need to attend to in order because I have a perfect will for everyone who's on the planet. And so God's at work doing these things. And in this case, as you look at this, God is going to manifest himself in his time. But we have to wait. The Apostle Paul certainly knew this. You see, God is going to even deliver the Jewish people through this terrible time called the tribulation. But the fact of the matter is, they're going to start day one going, can you end this right now, God? And it's not going to happen. It's going to last seven years. And all kinds of terrible things are going to go down. Do you have the faith to wait on God? The Bible clearly says that they that wait on the Lord, we already saw it, remember, will be renewed in strength. Those are the people that mount up with eagle's wings. Those are the ones that run and don't grow weary. Isaiah's already said that. He's basically repeating the same concept here. Men have not perceived, verse 4 says, nor heard, nor ear, I have seen, if you just wait for the Lord. You see, God's allowed destruction Many, many times in history past, 
for all kinds of different reasons to all kinds of different peoples because he has a plan that is still yet future. Sometimes I look at my, my own business experience and going through all the things that we went through as a, as a family-owned business. I believe beyond any shadow of doubt in my own life that God not only allowed, God actually caused the destruction of the business that we were in as a family. Why? Because he wanted me. He didn't want businessman Jeff. He wanted Pastor Jeff. And businessman Jeff was quite happy because businessman Jeff had all kinds of money and all those things that go along with it. And God was saying, no, that's become an idol. That's become a God. So I'm going to tear that down and you're going to have to wait on me for what comes next. You know, when you go from a corporate president to a janitor, there's a little bit of a culture shock. Amen? Hallelujah? Because sometimes we need exactly that. Sometimes we need a little time scrubbing toilets to recognize exactly what God wants us to do. And I'm using that metaphorically. I'm not suggesting that all of you should become janitors. Though if you are, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, because God speaks as you're scrubbing toilet bowls. I can testify to that personally and with some great insight sometime if you want to talk to me about them. I learned a lot of things with a toilet brush in my hand. I learned things about me. I learned things about this world. I learned things about the church. You know, Christians are not exactly the most cleanly in bathrooms. And I kind of thought that because we were all Christians, everybody would go in there and they'd be really nice. No, they're actually more filthy than heathens sometimes. I learned some things about human nature. And I learned some things about the grace of God. They that wait on the Lord. God had a time of waiting, and he has a time of waiting, I believe, for all of us. He has perfect timing in all that he does. In fact, the Apostle Paul knew this so well that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, as the scripture says, I hath not seen nor ear hath not heard. Guess who said that? He's referring to the prophet Isaiah. But it's interesting what he's referring to. And that is the final good things that the Lord has planned for us. You see, in light of heaven, the stuff that we go through here on earth, not going to matter all that much. Doesn't mean it isn't important while you're going through it, but in light of heaven, the Apostle Paul said, prepared for those that love him, but he has revealed them to us by his spirit. In other words, there are things that we know that are going to come later in life because we have waited on the Lord. And in the meantime, guess what? It's flesh against spirit. It's the Romans 8 thing. It's like I, I am confined to this body of flesh and I've got to fight those fights. I've got to battle those battles. Ultimately, your calling is from this earth to heaven, church. This is, this is not the final destination. You know, no matter what you're thinking about your future, and again, future plans are wonderful. They're good. Don't let anybody rob you of the joy of having plans in life. But they are not the end. Not for the child of God. No matter what your retirement home may look like or your retirement or lack thereof. No matter what it is at the end of your days. This world is not your home. You are, in fact, just simply passing through. And indeed, as the song says, your treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. It's not here, it's there. Isaiah is seeing that for the Jewish people. He's reminding them, look, eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither has entered into the hearts of men the things that God has prepared for those who love him. That's why we can 
think, at least conceptually, that this is as bad as it gets. Whatever's going on in your life right now, compared to heaven, relative to the glories of heaven, this is as bad as it gets. So if you've got good things right now, it only gets better. And if you've got bad things right now, it gets infinitely better than what you're experiencing right now. But the fact of the matter is, it always gets better for the child of God who waits on the Lord. Why Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus that God would grant to them the spirit of wisdom and that they would know the hope of their calling and that its end is in heaven. It's not here on earth. Sometimes we get so focused on the things of this earth that we forget about the glories of heaven. You know, I'm kind of I'm kind of one of those people. I am I'm the weird person that, you know, actually reads the signs on the side of the road. And when I go to an art museum, I want to know who painted that painting. And I've had the privilege of traveling and going to the Pitti Palace in Florence and to the Leonardo da Vinci Museum and to the Uffizi Gallery and all these places where all this Renaissance art exists. The real stuff. The actual paintings themselves. And when you look at the, the works of like the Renaissance masters of whom probably the greatest was Raphael. And as he paints these paintings on the Sistine Chapel, you know, in these quarters of the Pope, he's, he's commissioned by Pope Leo to do all these things. And you ever look at the paintings of what people think heaven's going to look like? It's a bunch of nude babies flapping around with little wings. It's like it's not going to be like that. Because I hath not seen nor ear has heard the glorious things that await the child of God in heaven. So if you can think it, it ain't it. It's not going to be, you know, God's not going to look like some kind of grim, you know, dude sitting in a chair with a long flowing beard. It's like, this is the Lord. You know, I don't think it's going to be like that at all. Because if I can think it, then that means my mind can understand it. And the Bible says you're, you don't know what's going to go on in heaven. When Paul got to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said this in verses 1 through 4, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord, for I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body I do not know or out of the body I do not know. In other words, he wasn't sure whether he physically went to heaven or whether he was transported there in the spirit. God knows such a one was caught up into the third heaven. Paul got a little glimpse. Verse 3, I know such a man, whether in body or out of body, I don't know, God knows. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not even lawful for a man to utter. So even the sounds of heaven, we have no way to process. So for those of you that love music, for those of you that, like I do, I, I, one of the most joyous things to me in the world is sitting outside in the eastern Sierra, and just listening to the wind go through the trees. It's like, Lord, is that what your voice sounds like? I don't know. Hearing a falcon screech down out of, I, I don't know. But if the sounds of heaven that the Apostle Paul heard were too glorious for him to actually repeat, then imagine what heaven itself is actually going to be like. And so Isaiah kind of gets this, this glimpse and gets the people focused in this prayer. He's saying, look, it is so much better where we are going that we, in our little tiny minds, can't even understand it. We can't think about it. If I only knew what God had in store for me, I, I think I'd probably burst from expectation. I'm one of those people that I get, you know... I. I get kind of worked up about going to new places. It's like I can't wait. Now, you know, any of you get out the suitcases and you like leave them in prominent places so you can, you know, look, we're going on a trip. Yay! It's going to be awesome. I also am that sick person that actually buys travel guides. 
Now, I don't know if you do that, but I'm the one who buys the travel, and I read it cover to cover. I know where that dude is that you know, sells the world's greatest donuts on the side of the road somewhere. I've studied it. I'm like, it's like, okay, we got to go to this place because this guy, he's in a food truck. and he, You know what I'm saying? Some of you are probably going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You put all this effort and energy into trying to figure out what it is that you're going to do when you get there, right? Now apply that to the glories of heaven. And yet we put zero time into thinking about heaven. We put all kinds of time into places that we can think about. But here's this glorious place that we're going to reside for eternity. And we're like, yeah, we'll heaven. What if we just inclined our our thoughts towards heaven? That's why the Bible calls it, why Titus spoke of it as the glorious hope of the appearing of our great God and King, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. One day, you're going to stand in the presence of the Lord. You think that might be kind of awesome? I do. Can't wait, and sometimes it keeps me going. There are days when life is hard when I think, one day heaven. There are times when people are going through difficulty and you don't have a word for them. You have nothing to say. You, know, you don't have any idea what to say to them to make it better. And in fact, the very moment they step into your office, they begin to cry and you're going, Lord God, help me have something to say. And you don't. It's like, Lord, one day heaven. And we're going to see that at the end of this marvelous book after Easter as we close out. No more death, no more dying, no more tears. Man, how does somebody walk into a supermarket and kill 10 people? How does that even happen? What would possess someone to do that? I can't wait for the day when I will never hear another story like that. I don't want to ever have to bury another child while the parents sit at the funeral. I don't want to do it. It rips my soul out. I don't know what to say. All I know to do is cry with them and share about the glories of heaven that someday, someday, you're going to see your child again. That's what heaven does for us, church. You know, there's that old saying has been around forever. That you're so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Can I tell you, I've never met that person. I've never met the person that's so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. In fact, every person that I've met that's actually heavenly minded is absolutely good for things here on earth because they have the right perspective. Oh, I want to be heavenly minded. Isaiah wanted to be heavenly minded. In fact, I wish that all of us were more heavenly minded. By the way, it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy life while we're on this earth. Can we just square that away? God has actually given us all things richly to enjoy. He's commanded those who are rich, as Paul writes to Timothy in there in 1 Timothy 6, to not be haughty, don't trust in those riches. Trust in God. But the things he's given us, he's given us to enjoy. So it's okay to have joy in the things that you have in this life. Enjoy what you have here. Don't rest in it. Don't trust in it. Paul goes on to tell Timothy, let them do good, that they may be rich in good works and ready to give and willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for time to come. That's a heavenly perspective. Again, it invades both the person with and the person without. 
Heaven squares things away for all of us. That's why Paul would go on to say, as he writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 there in verse 18, what he's saying there is, we look not at the things which are seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. We look to those things which cannot be seen for those things are eternal. And I'm looking towards eternal things. I, I, I just sometimes, as phone calls come in and emails come in and you, you're just sitting there, it's like, okay, Lord, something new and something fresh. And the bottom line, there is nothing new under the sun. Solomon is right. All is vanity, ultimately. It's like mankind still has the same problems. We have new ways to have the same old problems. Amen? You talk to anybody that, that does counseling on a regular basis, they will tell you there is nothing new under the sun. It's the same basic problems expressed in different ways. We've made it really complex. We've found new ways to do old things. But the bottom line is mankind is still the same as mankind has always been. We're constantly trying to justify the things that we say and do. God help us to wait on him and to look forward to heaven. Isaiah continues and wraps up this prayer. You meet with him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You indeed are angry for we have sinned. And in these ways we continue and we need to be saved. It's almost like Isaiah is like, oh God, we're so wicked. You know, God already knows that. You don't have to cajole God. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities are like the wind, and they have taken us away. And I don't think Isaiah here is so much trying to justify himself. He's making an acknowledgment of exactly the, the condition of the human heart. But sometimes our prayers are like this in the negative way. And I think it's worth us understanding that God already knows the wickedness of our hearts. He knows why we did what we did. He knows the intimate details. He is really looking for us to simply say, God, you know what? I messed up. I was wrong in that situation. I was ill-mannered. I was ill-tempered. I spoke hastily. I hurt that person. He is not looking for us to pull an Adam and Eve on him. Lord, the woman you gave me. Right? But we're prone to do that, even with God. It's like we, we start giving God all the intimate details of why he shouldn't be upset about what we're doing because, you know, after all, you put us in this situation, Lord. God's not having any of it. And so children of God respond to God knowing that he knows. In fact, Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that seeks to justify himself will not be cleansed, but whoever confesses his sin will be forgiven. You know, the Lord's not looking for an excuse. He's looking for repentance. And this transitions into our own lives as believers with each other as well. Can I tell you that I'm sorry but is not actually an apology? I'm sorry but, you know, you're really a jerk. Well, I know I'm a jerk. And you saying you're sorry following with but is, in essence, you blaming me for the reason that you did what you did. Take responsibility for your sin. Whether it's with someone else here on this earth, or whether it's before God, or both, which it usually is, because all sin is sin against God, and say, God... Against you and you alone have I sinned. And I am sorry, help me to not do that again. Not, well, if you just change my, my spouse, or if you just change my job, or if you just get me out of this situation or that situation, we are constantly looking to justify why we do the things we do. And God isn't having any of it. So lose that in your repertoire of talking to God. It's going to save you time. And it's going to make your prayer life very effective.
Lord, I messed up. Please forgive me and give me strength to not do that ever again. How many times are our prayer life just an attempt to justify those things? Daniel gives us a prayer that is in the right vein there in Daniel 9. Beautiful prayer. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord is righteous in all the works he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. You see what that is? That's straight up confession. Lord, we're the problem. You are right to spank us. Take the short path in repentance. Just say, Lord, you're right. I'm wrong. I heard what you said. I accept the whipping. I'm okay. Can we, like, move on now? And again, allow God to hear contrition from you. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a new name, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. That is the type of prayer that God honors. It's like, Lord, I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. I messed up. I'm sorry. God, I'm guilty, in other words. But what we typically want to do is basically kind of walk backwards a little bit on these things. It's like, well, you know, just donate a little more of my time to the Red Cross. You know, I'll get involved in some philanthropic endeavor. I'll do something with the ASPCA and I'll adopt a puppy. No, God actually is seeing way past all of that stuff. He's looking at our hearts. He's saying, yeah, but Jeff, you still feel the same way. You're still thinking the same things. You're still acting on that stuff. Maybe it's not as bad as it once was. You, you need to really just come clean. If you've got something going on in your life and maybe you're having a tough time getting over it, it could be that you're not truly repentant. And I'm judging no one. I'm simply saying that very often when I sit down with people and I actually walk through those things, we get to that place where eh, I kind of still am hanging on to that sin. I'm not really repentant. That was true for the children of Israel. I pray it's not for you. And if it is, word to the wise. Tell God what he already knows. Say, Lord, this is the sin. Name it by name and resist the devil and he'll flee. Tell God what he knows. Bottom line is, is as the Apostle Paul said there in Philippians 3, all of our righteous deeds are actually just filthy rubbish. They're trash. When you stack up God's righteousness on one side and your good stuff on the other, guess what happens? God's righteousness outweighs everything that you've ever done. And so it's not a matter of you trying to outdo God with good works or do enough to gain his favor. You'll never get there. The only righteousness that we have as believers came through Christ's blood shed for us. It's given to us. It's a gift. It's been put into your account, and your account is full of the righteousness of Christ. And so relationally, the Lord's saying, look, why don't you come clean with the stuff that's going on so that relationally we can be square. This is why I need those new robes that I, I put on there in Colossians 3. Why I put on the new man, put off the old man. I say, God, this is the problem. I'm getting rid of it. This is what I want to be. That's the direction I'm going. Notice a sovereign potter at work. There is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up, to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. You consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. In other words, we recognize who you are. We recognize we fall short of that. Here's the real deal. We are the clay. You are our potter. And all we are is the work of your hand. If you square this away in your life, if you remember who is the potter and who is the clay, 
And by the way, this is not the only place it's found. Three times in the scriptures there in Jeremiah 18 and also in Romans 9, you'll see the exact same situation. Here is the master potter sitting at the potter's wheel. And if you know anything about throwing a pot, it is all in the hands of the potter. You can take the very best wheel and the very best clay, and if you have a lousy potter, it does not matter what clay you use or what wheel you use or how balanced it is or anything else. The shape, the style, the decorations, everything about the pot is in the hands of the potter. Isaiah is acknowledging that. Now you're probably saying, well, I, I want to make my own pot. You see, we oftentimes are like back-talking clay. We're like the clay that gets on the wheel, like, well, we don't like the way you push on the other side. It's like, could you, could you make a ridge over here? I want to be a little bit narrower because I'm kind of a little large. Like, Lord, I want to have a big mouth. No, I want you to have a small mouth. Lord, I want to be tall. No, I want you to be short. You see, a lot of times we're back-talking clay. We get on the wheel, and God starts to spin us around and around, and we're like, eh, I don't, eh, eh. We're whining clay, talking clay. We need to remember who's the potter. You see, here's the deal. When you know the potter, and you know who he is, and you know what he will do, when you know that all things work together to the good, to those who love God, and are they called according to his purpose, when you know the potter is the one that says about you, my thoughts towards you are good, they're not evil, they're a future and they're a hope plans to prosper you. You see, when you know who the potter is, you can trust the potter. But when you don't know who the potter is, then you try and direct the hands of the potter. I learned a long time ago to stop trying to force my will on the potter. The potter is going to make this pot whatever he wants it to be. If he wants to use me in one way, praise the Lord. If he wants to use me in another, praise the Lord. If he doesn't want to use me at all, he wants me to do something, praise the Lord. He's the potter on the clay. I have no power to change what the pot is going to be. That is in the hands of the potter. Isaiah sees this. So important, church. To have absolute confidence in the potter. Let him do with you whatever he wants. If he wants to take you off the wheel, you know sometimes every once in a while the pot gets a little messed up. You know what a good potter does? Takes the wad of clay, grabs a piece of wire, cuts it off the wheel, slaps it down and beats the tar out of it. You ever watched a potter remake a pot that's already been on the wheel once? It's like you get slapped and thrown down and trashed, and it's like, it's like we got to start over. Got to get all the air bubbles out of it. There's a lot going on. Hopefully, the Lord won't have to remake your pot. But if he does, he's doing it for a reason. He's remade my pot a couple of times. Connie and I have had major steps of faith in our life to where it's like, okay, you want us to start over? We're going to start over. Have confidence. And finally, final question. Is God really angry? Notice verse 9. Don't be furious, O Lord. Nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, for we are all your people. But your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is desolation. Your holy and beautiful temple where your fathers praised you was burned up with fire. Now this is looking forward to a time when the temple was destroyed. 
and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Is God really angry? And the answer is basically yes and no. God is angry at sin because sin destroys. And so when we sin, we bring something into our house that God is angry at. It's as if you decided you wanted to have a pet rattlesnake. The, the pet rattlesnake roaming around your house is something that is eventually going to bite you. Amen? You know, if you don't have it in the cage, it's not locked up someplace, and you're over there, you have no idea where it's at. That's the way sin actually is in the life of a believer. You have no idea when you're going to get bit, but you're going to get bit because you allowed the rattlesnake to live in your house. So God's like, no, I don't want the rattlesnake living in your house. So God's going around with the snake stick. He's trying to find the rattlesnake. And he's turning over furniture. He's going to look at, he's going to allow all kinds of things to happen in your life. You see what God is basically saying is like, no, I'm not really mad at you, but what you're doing, that's not okay. I love you, but what you're doing is displeasing. What you're doing is going to cause you pain and going to cause you grief. So in order that you don't experience that ultimate pain, that ultimate grief, I'm going to upset your apple cart. I'm going to turn the tables over on your life. I'm going to allow things in your life to where you will not pursue this particular path because it's going to kill you. So sometimes we confuse the fact that God actually loves us but still allows bad things to happen to good people. And God definitely allows bad things to happen to good people. But sometimes we bring some bad things on us. Because we do bad things, it causes God to say, well, if that's what you want, I'm going to let you have it. Remember, according to verse 4, God has planned for his people wonderful things beyond their imagination. He wants them to share in his blessings. So there's always a reason if there's something going on. God's either got a purpose that he ordained it for to teach us something, to bring us some new treasure spiritually, or he's working on the pot. He's saying you need a little pressure here, a little pressure there. There's something going on. There's an impurity there. I'm going to have to, sorry, Jeff, I'm going to have to slap your lump, lump of clay back down again. I'm put it back on the board. I'm going to knock all the air bubbles out. We're going to start over. God will make us new as many times as is necessary. Anybody glad that he's a, he's a do-over God? He's a do-over God, church. He delights to make brand new vessels. He loves us that much. Isaiah's prayer for the children of Israel was one that was looking forward to the future when they would experience the good things that God had for them. But they had some trouble coming. And so there's a picture here for us as we close. Just because you have trouble in the present doesn't mean that God isn't good. Just because there's a storm on the horizon doesn't mean that there aren't clear clear skies on the other side of it. Just because the Lord allows things in your life which hurt doesn't mean that he hates. God is still good, but he's so good that if you feel like you're clay that's being slapped down, there's probably a reason for it. You might need to ask him what it is. You might need to wait for him to tell you the answer. But when you do, you're going to go, Got it, Lord. Thank you. Thanks for loving me that much that you would remake my pot. Notice verse 12. After all this, the NIV says, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent? Will you punish us beyond measure? The answer is absolutely no, he won't. He never allows anything to touch his children that he hasn't filtered through his marvelous grace. It may hurt, it may sting, it might be painful, but it's not to destroy. It's to build us up so that we can look forward to heaven. Amen?
Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. I want to remind you, Sunday we start Easter. It's going to be amazing. Four windows to Easter. We begin with the window of the garden. We look at what Jesus went through on the night he was betrayed before he goes to the cross. And then Good Friday, no service next Thursday night. Good Friday instead, communion service. You do not want to miss it. And then Easter morning at 6 out in the east parking lot where we had to be for our outdoor services for COVID, we get to be to watch the sun come up. Amen? And then Sunday morning back in here for completely different messages each time because God wants us to narrow our focus. He wants us to see him for who he is. He wants us to know how much he loves us. Father, we thank you for that great love wherein you have loved us that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus, you died for us. And Lord, we are so grateful for that grace. We thank you for your mercy, which is new every morning, your loving kindness, which is as a river. Lord, these beautiful promises. Lord, help us to wait on you. Help us to come clean with you. Help us to leave our junk at the door. Remember that you have great plans for our lives. And that one day when they come to full fruition, when we step into glory, Lord, that all this will make full sense. Until that time, give us great faith to endure our trips around the wheel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.